Today in Studio 360's American Icons, a mild-mannered writer and a famous militant team up to write an unlikely bestseller. It is a collaboration almost unparalleled in the history of literature. The book is the autobiography of Malcolm X, a larger-than-life tale of injustice and anger and personal redemption. You know, I felt implicated when he talked about the white devil. There were a couple times when I wanted to throw the book across the room. And it's a book that speaks to people across the political spectrum, including the Tea Party. For example, I, I quoted President Jefferson right along with Malcolm X. This is a part of America. This is another frustrated American. I have my goatee to this day because of that book. I will never shave it off. The Autobiography of Malcolm X, today in Studio 360's American Icons from PRI and WNYC. He revealed the secret. What's the secret? In the middle of Greenwich Village in Manhattan, there's a short, narrow, old-fashioned residential lane called Grove Street. And in the middle of one block of Grove Street is a nondescript brick apartment building that you'd never guess is an historic landmark. There's no plaque on the wall outside. Uh, It's quite an eerie feeling to be here. 92 Grove Street is a rambling six-story set around a courtyard, really not much more than an air shaft. This isn't the way you and your dad would enter, huh? No, you wouldn't enter up here. Fifty years ago, in the back of the building, was the writer's studio rented by a black journalist named Alex Haley. Very hidden away back here. The Mm -hmm. same Alex Haley who'd become famous a decade later for his book Roots. Because I remember, I'm sure it was this room here. Haley grew up in Tennessee, and that's where he raised his eldest son, Bill Haley, who I talked to before he died in 2012. They didn't have the bars, but... I wonder if the people living here have any idea of what happened. uh... Probably not. What happened in Alex Haley's little studio at the back of 92 Grove is an extraordinary scene in literary history. Joining him in this 8x10 room for more than 50 in-depth interviews over two years was another black man, tall, bespectacled, with a goatee. Haley had already interviewed him for a couple of magazine articles. Now he wanted to tell his whole life story in a book. The man called himself Malcolm X. Haley's sitting in a chair taking notes while Malcolm is walking around the room. Malcolm was 6'3", weighed about 170 pounds, thin as a rail, filled with energy and life, probably drinking about seven or eight cups of coffee a day. When they'd started the interview sessions in 1963, Malcolm X was already famous as the fiery, charismatic minister of the radical nation of Islam. Dad was a fast typist, and he was going to tape Malcolm. But Malcolm said he didn't want to be on tape. I mean, he didn't know that they had the place bug, but... When you said they had the place bug, what does that mean? They had surveillance on Malcolm and this studio down here. They, they being were, the FBI. The FBI, yeah. We declare our right on this earth to be a man, to be a human being. What caught the FBI's attention was Malcolm's demand for black rights by any means necessary. That scared the bejesus out of white people. When his life story, the one he told Alex Haley at 92 Grove, finally came out in 1965, it caused something of a sensation. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. I mean, it really sort of exploded. And I own one-sixth of it as royalties, and I still clock, God forbid I should say this, <laughs> probably about 30000 a year. And this is, what, 45 years later? Wow. Malcolm X didn't live to see his story in print, But the book he left behind stands today as a milestone along the road to black equality and self-respect. And even now, with a black man in the White House, it remains one of the most urgent books about race ever written. Today on American Icons, we're cracking open the autobiography of Malcolm X. When my mother was pregnant with me, she told me later, a party of hooded Ku Klux Klan riders galloped up to our home in Omaha, Nebraska one night. Surrounding the house, brandishing their shotguns and rifles, they shouted for my father to come out. My mother went to the front door and opened it. Standing where they could see her pregnant condition, she told them that she was alone with her three small children. 
The autobiography of Malcolm X is an enraged, unflinching account of racism in mid-century America. It's also a kind of Horatio Alger tale. Separated from his family at age 13, Malcolm Little had fallen into a life of crime by his late teens. And by 21, he was in prison, and that is where he began to turn his life around. Adopting the name Malcolm X, he eventually became a leader of the hardcore part of the movement fighting for black rights. And yet toward the end of his life, Malcolm changed again, softening his views. Although plenty of white people despised Malcolm X, his death came at the hands of his black former comrades in the Nation of Islam. He was only 39, and his autobiography very nearly died with him. One morning, I heard on the radio, I think, that Malcolm had been assassinated and that Doubleday was not going to publish his book. And I was very upset by that. The late Barney Rossett was the founder of Grove Press. The story behind the autobiography picks up with him. And in the papers, Nelson Doubleday said, I don't want my secretaries to be killed because of this book. He said he didn't want stores smashed. And I thought, my God, maybe we can get it. Rossett was notorious for publishing books nobody else would touch, transgressive and smutty books by William S. Burroughs and Henry Miller. After Malcolm was killed and Doubleday got cold feet, Grove Press picked up the manuscript for $20,000. And Malcolm's story was finally published with these words on the cover. He rose from hoodlum, thief, dope peddler, pimp, to become the most dynamic leader of the black revolution. He said he would be murdered before this book appeared. The Autobiography of Malcolm X. I know that societies often have killed the people who have helped to change those societies. And if I can die, having brought any light, having exposed any meaningful truth that will help to destroy the racist cancer that is malignant in the body of America, then all of the credit is due to Allah. Only the mistakes have been mine. There were so many times I can remember looking out the window, wondering where my father was. And I really never knew what happened to my father. In 1965, Ilyasa Shabazz wasn't yet three years old when her father was murdered. I would have the autobiography turn to the page where, because it was the older version with all the pictures, and it was his mugshot. I had no idea that was my father. And so I would tell my sisters that this is the man who killed Daddy. We would hit the book. <laughs> I mean, we did all the little things. So th- I mean, I would love to see this book now just to see what did we do to that poor page, you know? And when I look at it today, I look, I look, just, like, <laughs> I look just like the picture, you know, <laughs> with a very bad perm, <laughs> you know? Today, we're re-examining the autobiography of Malcolm X, tattered pages and all. To find out more about the autobiography and Malcolm's life, I paid a visit to Manning Marable. Uh, Dr. Marable is waiting for you. Okay. He spent years holed up in his seventh-floor office at Columbia University working on his own book about Malcolm X. Marable was already in poor health when I interviewed him, and he died in 2011, just days before his biography was published and became a bestseller. It's called Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention. I talked to everybody, the people who loved Malcolm and those who hated him and tried to kill him. I discovered, for example, the police officer who spent a year of his life illegally wiretapping Malcolm X. And I got his story. And it was fascinating because Malcolm converted a white cop from New York in the 60s simply by listening to the wiretaps. And he said, this guy is not an enemy. He's a good guy. Amazing. Like Martin Luther King, Malcolm X was a riveting, persuasive speaker. Malcolm was also a preacher, but a preacher of self-defense and pride and African heritage. And here's the irony. He was born in Nebraska, for God's sakes, and grew up... For in- God's sakes, I was born in <laughs> Omaha as well. All right. He was born in Omaha, but came to embody the grittiness and the intensity of the ghetto. And nothing stood out more for the world 
as a symbol of the ghetto than Harlem. It was in Harlem that Malcolm began to get real attention for his provocative speeches as a minister in the Nation of Islam. Quick history lesson here. The Nation of Islam was and is a morally strict religious black separatist sect that sprang up in America's ghettos during the 1930s. By 1963, Malcolm had risen to second in command, helping the nation grow to more than 25,000 members, all the men wearing the same crisp white shirts and black ties. But their views were considered fringe, and Malcolm's co-author, Alex Haley, wasn't buying it. Haley and Malcolm were totally different people. Uh, Haley was a Republican. A liberal Republican. But nevertheless a Republican and an integrationist and really not sympathetic with uh, the politics of Pan-Africanism, the idea that blacks everywhere should unite and that no black person could be free anywhere unless they were free everywhere. Malcolm, on the other hand, when he was in the Nation of Islam, advocated racial separatism, but also what we later called black power. No sane black man really wants integration. No sane white man really wants integration. No sane black man really believes that the white man ever will give the black man anything more than token integration. No. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches that for the black man in America, the only solution is complete separation from the white man. The process of producing the autobiography didn't go well at first. Haley, the professional writer, wanted a rip-roaring good read, but Malcolm just kept reciting the ideology of the Nation of Islam and its leader, Elijah Muhammad. Haley became desperate for material. Malcolm had a tendency of scribbling on a pad of paper, writing notes, then throwing them away. When Malcolm visited Haley at his apartment, he would fish into the trash can, pulling the notes out, reconstructing what Malcolm was writing. And this went on, frustratingly, for months. Every time the subject moved to Malcolm's personal life, he'd clam up. And then came a night, cold, winter, New York, snow up to the knees. This is Alex Haley speaking in a 1992 documentary. And this night, I asked him again. I said, we have to have something about you. And he was angry. He snatched up his coat. He started striding toward the door. And I just very quietly said as he jerked the door open, Mr. Malcolm, could you tell me something about your mother? And I remember he just, he just almost froze. Haley had found the magic word, Malcolm's rosebud. Malcolm X began to pace around the room at 92 Grove Street. In a counterclockwise direction. And his voice softened. It's funny you should ask me that. I remember the kind of dresses she used to wear. They were old and faded and gray. And then he walked a little more and he said, and I remember she was always bent over the stove trying to stretch what little we had. And I'll tell you something, it was about maybe 11.30 at night when he said those things. And that man walked that floor till the day broke. Out of him spilled what essentially is now in the first chapter of the autobiography of Malcolm X called Nightmare. My older brothers and sister had started to school when sometimes they would come in and ask for a buttered biscuit or something, and my mother, impatiently, would tell them no. But I would cry out and make a fuss until I got what I wanted. I remember how well my mother asked me why I couldn't be a nice boy like Wilfred, but I would think to myself that Wilfred, for being so nice and quiet, often stayed hungry. So, early in life, I had learned that if you want something, you had better make some noise. This was the kind of moving human story that Alex Haley was searching for, and it fills the first third of the autobiography. Sent to a foster home in Michigan, Malcolm eventually moves east to Boston and then down to New York City. Spanning three chapters from homeboy to hustler, it's the classic sowing of wild oats part of his story. He was trying to describe to Haley what Lindy Hop dancing was like. And he grabs a stick or a broom, and he starts dancing. Haley's shocked. Can't believe it. Hamps band wailing. I was whirling girls so fast their skirts were snapping. Black girls, brown skins, high yellows, even a couple of the white girls there. Boosting them over my hips, my shoulders, into the air. 
Though I wasn't quite 16 then, I was tall and raw-boned and looked like 21. I was also pretty strong for my age. Circling, tap dancing, I was underneath them when they landed, doing the flapping eagle, the kangaroo, and the split. After that, I never missed a Roseland Lindy Hop as long as I stayed in Boston. The nights on the dance floors in Boston were eventually replaced by selling dope in Harlem. That's when Malcolm, with his zoot suits and conch red hair, acquired a new nickname. Just when, I don't know, but people, knowing I was from Michigan, would ask me what city. Since most New Yorkers had never heard of Lansing, I would name Detroit. Gradually, I began to be called Detroit Red, and it stuck. Detroit Red is a trickster tale. It's about a hick from Michigan who comes to the big city and becomes a big-time hustler, a gangster, a criminal. But that's the most fictive part of the work. The first time he's arrested by the police is, is Thanksgiving 1944 when he steals his Aunt Grace's coat and he hocks it for $5. Manning Marable says the whole Detroit Red phase was embellished, hyped up for maximum effect. And Alex Haley was happy to play along. Haley wanted a pot boiler that would sell copies. Now, truth be told, Malcolm severely exaggerated many of his crime exploits because he wanted to show the transformative power of Elijah Muhammad. He needed to be a bigger sinner in order to become sufficiently redeemed by Elijah Muhammad. It worked for St. Augustine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I want to say before I go on that I have never previously told anyone my sordid past in detail— I haven't done it now to sound as though I might be proud of how bad, how evil I was. But people are always speculating, why am I as I am? To understand that of any person, his whole life from birth must be reviewed. All of our experiences fuse into our personality. Everything that ever happened to us is an ingredient. Coming up, Malcolm goes to prison and finds enlightenment. He revealed the secret. What's the secret? That maybe black folk really don't like white people. You can't help but be a little giddy when you read that. Still more secrets from the autobiography of Malcolm X in just a minute. You're listening to Studio 360's American Icons from PRI and WNYC. Stay with us. We'll be going right back to American Icons. Forgive the interruption, but we happen to be hosting... A listener challenge right now at Studio360.org, and it's your last week to enter, so I wanted to let our judges explain what they're looking for. Hi, everyone. I'm Heaven. I'm Tracy. And we're the hosts of BuzzFeed's podcast, Another Round with Heaven and Tracy. Yes, and we are here to ask Studio 360's listeners to make a valentine for your special someone in GIF form. In GIF form. In GIF form. Okay. 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 <laughs> it can be for anyone, for your grandma. Oh, granny. For your ex. No, don't do that. For your Tinder date. Sure. <laughs> if you like them. For your cat. People are into cats. I'm not so much, but I'm not here to judge you, you know, if that's what you want. We'll accept all gifts for all things. <laughs> Bonus points for anything that accurately conveys what it feels like to drink alone on February 14th. So lots of, if you can find like a good gif of eating and crying, I think that's what it feels like. (laughs) (laughs) Send all entries at studio360.org slash gif until February 1st. Can't wait to see him. And February 1st, of course, is Monday. So this is the last week you can enter. Go for it. Reading Jane Austen, I'm I'm not challenged in the same way that I am reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, you know? Like, books that change your life, make you think about the world, and I didn't get that from Jane Austen. 
Pride, prejudice. In this edition of Studio 360's American Icons, we're looking at the autobiography of Malcolm X. Americans are always saying, if only we could finally have that national conversation about race. Well, try reading the autobiography. It had a few things to say about the subject more than five decades ago. Its criticism of white people, even if you know it's coming, is still shocking to read on the page. And some of the language you're going to hear in this hour may not be appropriate for younger listeners. You know, I grew up in a working-class household, you know. Uh, father delivered mail for a living. My mother cleaned toilets for a living. She eventually became a supervisor of people who cleaned toilets. Uh, and my father can't stand white people. Eddie Glaude is a professor of religion and African-American studies at Princeton. You know, we would watch footage of the civil rights movement, and he would just literally curse at the television. So it was wonderful and liberating for me to find language for it. Unless we call one white man by name a devil, we are not speaking of any individual white man. We are speaking of the collective white man's historical record. And I remember as a young country boy from Mississippi, crying out, oh my God. We are speaking of the collective white man's cruelties and evils and greeds that have seen him act like a devil toward the non-white man. I have my goatee to this day because of that book. I will never shave it off. He revealed the secret. What's the secret? That maybe black folk really don't like white people. You can't help but be a little giddy when you read that. One of the first white journalists to be let in on this secret was Peter Goldman, who was then a newspaper reporter in St. Louis. Back in the early 60s, he wrote a series of articles about the Nation of Islam. A couple of months after that ran, I got a phone call and uh, a voice said, this is Minister Malcolm X. I'm going to be in St. Louis to visit the local mosque. Would you like to meet with me? They met at a Muslim coffee shop and talked for more than two hours. Obviously, I didn't share his theology. It's very hard for me to accept being a blue-eyed devil, which was the central part of the uh, – and I have blue eyes yes. and was never so embarrassed by them. But nothing he said was spoken in anger. Nothing was threatening. Nothing nothing made us tense. Leaving out the, the theology of the nation of Islam, I thought the indictment was undeniable. The indictment of what white what, America of, did to black people. Yes, exactly. Exactly. The white Southerner, you can say one thing. He is honest. He bears his teeth to the black man. He tells the black man to his face that Southern whites will never accept phony integration. The Southern white goes further to tell the black man that he means to fight him every inch of the way against even the so-called tokenism. In 1972, almost a decade after the Civil Rights Act was passed, 13-year-old Marcellus Blunt moved to a new school, an almost all-white school on Staten Island in New York City. I was the token. I always felt as though I was the token. What was I doing there? Baldwin uses the phrase, a fly in the buttermilk. One day early in the fall semester, Marcellus was running late for class. As he got close to school, he was confronted by a group of white kids. They barred my entrance, surrounded me, and started punching and kicking me. I fell to the ground and was beaten severely. And as I was being beaten, they shouted, nigger, nigger. That's a term I had heard, but it was the first time I had been called a nigger by a white person. And to be called a nigger was even worse than it was to be beaten up. That experience actually taught me, and this connects to the autobiography, that I never really knew what whites around me were thinking. Today, Professor Marcellus Blunt teaches the autobiography to a class of undergraduates at Columbia, but most of whom have never seen raw racial hatred firsthand. To shock the reader. Are there those of you who were offended? Yes. Uh, I was pissed. I was pissed because, I, I don't know, I, I could see how he was really going to be able to reshape things. Working under the same model 
segmenting people. And I was surprised because I'm like, if it's not pissing you off, you need to read it again. Julie Poole majored in creative writing and took Marcellus Blunt's class. I, I was enraged for multiple reasons. It's funny because I, you know, I felt implicated when he talked about the white devil. And there were a couple times when I, I wanted to throw the book across the room. I never will forget one little blonde co-ed after I had spoken at her New England college. She must have caught the next plane behind that one I took to New York. She found the Muslim restaurant in Harlem. I just happened to be there when she came in. I mean, I wanted to talk to him. I wanted to understand why, I don't know, why he felt the way he did. Anyway, I'd never seen anyone I ever spoke before more affected than this little white college girl. She demanded, right up in my face, Don't you believe there are any good white people? I didn't want to hurt her feelings. I told her, People's deeds I believe in, miss, not their words. What can I do? She exclaimed. I told her, Nothing. She burst out crying and ran out and up Lenox Avenue and caught a taxi. Julie Poole grew up in Seattle, but moved to Malcolm's old Harlem neighborhood during college. It's funny because, I mean, I moved to Harlem. I've never seen so many black people in my life. (laughs) And I was like, oh, shit. I am the face of the white gentrifier, you know? I'm that person. And I felt this, like, this palpable... um, tension, this racial tension. Like, I'd be walking at home at night and see, you know, a young black man walking my direction, and I would feel like this wanting to veer a little bit away. And I want to understand what I'm afraid of. What Julie did understand, in a personal sense, was Malcolm's fractured childhood and how it shaped his early life. My father died when I was young, and my my mom and my sisters and I moved around a lot. So I related to Malcolm X on that level, what it's like to lose a parent, and how hard it is to keep a family together. You know, I thought about that when I was reading the book, and I wonder how things would have been different for him if he would have been able to stay. We're talking today about the autobiography of Malcolm X on PRI and WNYC's American Icons. A turning point in the book comes after Malcolm is sentenced to prison for burglary. He spends an inordinate amount of time in solitary confinement, but it's there that he's introduced to the writings of Elijah Muhammad. He joins the Nation of Islam, and here the autobiography becomes the story of Malcolm's personal redemption and self-improvement. And it's the reason the book is still one of the most popular reads among inmates. It's the prison part of the book that I remember most vividly. Gerald Early is a professor of English at Washington University in St. Louis. When he goes to prison, he starts to read, particularly uh, the dictionary. Finally, the dictionary's A section had filled a whole tablet, and I went on into the B's. That was the way I started copying what eventually became the entire dictionary. That struck me enormously. I just thought, oh, wow. He was the first person to make becoming intellectual, becoming learned, seem very, very masculine to me. I suppose it was inevitable that as my word base broadened, I could for the first time pick up a book and read and now begin to understand what the book was saying. I mean, for a long time, I was going around as a kid thinking prison as being some kind of university. I I thought people went to prison and read books and they came out, they were like Malcolm X or something. But it's absurd. The story at face value simply doesn't make sense. Manning Marable says this is another instance of Malcolm and Alex Haley taking some license with the story for dramatic effect. Because this is a man whose mastery of language was astonishing, even while he was in prison. I think in some ways it was kind of translated, I think, for many people to think that anybody who was going to prison in essence, was rebelling against the status quo, against the society they were in, and the like, which I think was a misinterpretation. That part of the legacy got really emphasized when the Black Panthers came on the scene because the Black Panthers re-inscribed, kind of romanticizing the connection with prison. And sort of fetishizing the gun. Right, exactly. Malcolm X advocates armed Negroes. What was wrong with that? I'll tell you what was wrong. 
I was a black man talking about physical defense against the white man. During the 1960s, there was a constant tension between Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, between nonviolent resistance and resistance by any means necessary. If you couldn't get a gun, Malcolm advised learning martial arts to, quote, show you how to break a white man's neck. As the decade got crazier and increasingly violent, Malcolm's message started looking more and more persuasive. In April 1968, Dr. King was assassinated, and I got very, very angry, as did a lot of young black people, and went down to 125th Street when they were rioting and threw a brick and ran from the cops and declared myself that night a black militant. Jamal Joseph is a writer and film director, but in 1968, he was just a 15-year-old kid from the Bronx dying to become a real man and a black panther. We were riding out to the Panther office in Brooklyn on Nostrand Avenue from the Bronx. So this was a long ride. Plenty of time to psych each other out. Another guy says, man, you know you got to kill a white dude to be a Panther. And the other guy says, no, you don't have to kill a white dude. You got to kill a white cop and you got to bring in his badge and his gun. And I'm like, what inside? But whatever it takes. I don't care. We get to the Panther office and they're having a meeting. Came and sat in the meeting and the person was reading the 10-point program, which talked about employment and housing and and inter-police brutality. And by the time you got down to point number five, I'm not really listening to what's going on. I'm just pumping myself up, you know. I'm a black relative, and I'm not a punk. I'm a black relative, I'm not a punk. In the middle of this person talking about education, I jump up and I said, choose me, brother, or me. I'm ready to kill a white dude right now. Whole meeting stops, and he calls me up front, and everybody's looking at me. He's sitting behind a wooden desk, and he reaches into the bottom drawer of the desk, and the door creaks, you know, it's an old desk, so it sounds like tales from the crypt, like the crypt opening, and he reaches down. My heart's pounding, and I'm thinking to myself, look how far down he's reaching to that desk. He's going to give me a big-ass gun. And he hands me a stack of books. And I'm looking at the books, and in the books, of course, the autobiography of Malcolm X. And so I figured this must be a test, and I'm supposed to respond to the test question. And I said, excuse me, brother. I thought you were going to arm me. And he said, excuse me, young brother. I just did. Coming up... This should be a book that's read every five years because it's like food, man. It ain't McDonald's, man. It's the autobiography of Malcolm X. Is sit your ass down, say grace, we eat your food very slowly as we sit around this table and do it. Public enemies Chuck D. and a member of the Tea Party both claim their piece of the autobiography. Too black, too strong. Yo, Chuck, You're listening to American Icons from PRI and WNYC. Stay with us. I'm Kurt Anderson. Today on American Icons, we're rereading the autobiography of Malcolm X. It's a book that chronicles one man's quest for identity and justice in the most turbulent chapter of modern American history. It is also a mesmerizing page-turner. During that time, I worked the graveyard shift at a truck stop. And that in itself, I could tell you stories for days about the prostitutes and the uh, pimps and hustlers that I was constantly surrounded with over there. Bilal Beydoun is a first-generation Lebanese-American from Dearborn, Michigan. He first encountered the autobiography one night working the late shift. I read the intro and the forward, and then I remember turning the page, reading those first words. When my mother was pregnant with me, she told me later. I don't remember anything else in that moment. I don't remember any bells ringing. I don't remember, and you work at those truck stops, there's always all those bells ringing, people trying to fuel up. The bright lights, the store, everything just kind of disappeared. It, it almost felt like I was in a room alone with him. He was talking to me. I began thinking about my own life. 
This was not long after the terrorist attacks of September 11th and the American backlash against Muslims. Fear and even loathing was real. I was an easy target. Thank God I had bulletproof glass all around me. I mean, after getting all those insults, it really helped center things for me. For, for myself, it was, yes, I am a Muslim. I am an Arabic person. I live in post-9-11 America, and I'm proud of it. I'm proud to be who I am. I've never finished a book so fast. In some quarters, Malcolm X is better known as El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz. That's the name he took near the end of his life after going on a pilgrimage to Mecca. Malcolm converted to mainstream Sunni Islam and finally broke from the American nation of Islam and its fringy views. The last four chapters are dramatically different from the first three-fourths of the book because he describes why he had been wrong. That's the late Manning Marable, author of Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention. He calls this change by Malcolm the most surprising thing in the book. And it transforms his life because he sees Europeans and Asians and Africans. And he says, this is what Islam truly is. And this is what I want to be. There were tens of thousands of pilgrims from all over the world. They were of all colors, from blue-eyed blondes to black-skinned Africans. But we were all participating in the same ritual, displaying a spirit of unity and brotherhood that my experiences in America had led me to believe never could exist between the white and the non-white. Does Alex Haley go, finally, my son, you've, you've, you've seen the light, You're now, now oh, we're no. more on the same page? I think Alex is a little disturbed by it all. This certainly isn't the same Malcolm he started the book with uh, the year before. But he finally gets a grip and figures out that the strength of the autobiography is the journey that Malcolm takes. In the autobiography, Alex Haley actually gets the last word. In an 87-page epilogue, he tries to explain what happened at the end of Malcolm's life. But the end of Malcolm's life was actually just the beginning of a new debate. Peter Goldman, the journalist who wrote about Malcolm early on, was at Newsweek by then and says that many Americans were anxious to put all that talk of racism behind them. So I think the takeaway for a lot of liberal whites was, oh boy, he doesn't hate us anymore. Uh, he's tamed. He's an integrationist now. Malcolm's fixed. And you don't believe that based on your no. conversation? No, no. And I didn't need him to be fixed. I, I valued his voice. That voice would keep provoking and inspiring long after he was gone. The autobiography made sure of that. But which Malcolm would endure? It was easy to cherry-pick from the book, especially as it got sucked into the pop culture. From the 1960s on, and even now, Malcolm's legacy has been up for grabs. Can a superfly Harlem dude leave the system? He's got a plan. I think black exploitation films really drew a lot from, from Malcolm. I mean, first of all, they were very urban movies that tended to show this terrible white system of oppression. Professor Gerald Early sees Malcolm as a source of the caricatured, tough-talking, gun-toting ex-con who was up against the man and out to get whitey. But Malcolm is always very careful to denounce that. You know, when I was out there in the streets, I was stupid. I didn't know anything, blah, 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 blah. You know, I was out there running around these white women, which, of course, for him was the ultimate sin. <laughs> you know, it just goes to show how powerful the book was. When I see people online and they freaking, like, they're selling T-shirts with a picture of my father holding a rifle and it says, by any means necessary. Malcolm's daughter, Ilyasa Shabazz. Why are you selling a shirt like this? You know, oh, because Malcolm shows us that you can be a gangster and still rise to be something even better. And I'm like, no, the reason that my father had a rifle was because his house had been firebombed with a Molotov cocktail. A bomb was thrown in the nursery where his children slept. His house was firebombed. They were trying to kill him, and the police didn't come to help him. Nobody came to help. So when I see this by any means necessary nonsense, they again are using him for their own agenda. One time we were hanging up flyers, myself and Hank Shockley, 
and we were promoting a gig using Malcolm X when he was looking out the window. Back in the 1980s, an MC named Chuck D was the front man for an up-and-coming rap group. They called themselves Public Enemy. This kid came by, and he wanted one of the flyers and looked at it and said, um, you know, who's this Malcolm the Tenth? He, he, he wanted to keep it. He was curious as hell who this Malcolm the Tenth was. It was a telling moment. Twenty years after Malcolm's death, he was already beginning to fade from memory. But his autobiography was still in print and still selling. This should be a book that's read every five years for a black male especially. Because it's like food, man. It ain't, it's not McDonald's, man. It's autobiography of Malcolm X is sit your ass down, say grace, wash your hands, and eat your food very slowly as we sit around this table and do it. Rap groups like Public Enemy brought Malcolm X back into the limelight in the late 1980s. It was about an entire movement of rappers saying that we are Malcolm X, for real. I'm not fighting no power. Public Enemy, I listened to them, went to the concerts, couldn't stand them. Forgive me. I just was not that militant person. Loretta Crawford was a bookish teenager in the New Jersey suburbs at the time. She worried that the complicated man she'd read about in the autobiography was being lost in the shuffle. I think Malcolm wrote that book not for necessarily white America. I think he actually wrote it for black America. But unfortunately, not many of us have actually read it. In 1992, Spike Lee's movie adaptation of the book starring Denzel Washington sparked a full-blown Malcolm mania. Remember all the kids wearing ex-baseball caps? For Loretta, it was a chance to show her boyfriend at the time, a Public Enemy fan, the real deal. And I dragged him with me, and he looked at me with a straight face and said, Are you bringing that book? (laughs) I said, Yes, I am. (laughs) He was like, Okay. So we're sitting in the movie theater. And then when Spike opens up with the flag and then it burns and it just, I mean, it just set the stage. And I said, yes. I was ready and I was prepped up and I went through literally chapter by chapter as we went through. Kevin said, I cannot believe you're sitting here with this book. I said, okay, that's the part in the book when he said they burned down his father's house and they all got him out and he shot him. And I'm saying all this in the movie and and the people behind me at first were like, shh. And then after a while, they were like, well, where are we at in the book? (laughs) And here I am, 17 years old, with this book in my hand. And finally, Kevin was sitting there. And now he felt like the man because now he has, like, these middle-aged white people. They knew of him from the 60s. They knew of Malcolm from the news clips. But they really didn't know him. They never read the book. And finally... The people behind me in front of me said, we're going to go get the book. And then we're going to read the book and come back and see the movie again. I'm a man. You a dead nigga. A real man don't hide behind no bed sheets. If Loretta sounds school teachery, well, it's because she is. Davon Johnson. Miss Crawford teaches history at a high school in Newark, New Jersey, named after Malcolm X. Newark is one of the poorest and blackest cities in America, and Malcolm X Shabazz High reflects that. Hurry up. You got 2.2 seconds. All right. For those of you that are just coming in, Lamar and um, Mr. Floyd, good morning. We went over the character list yesterday of Malcolm X. You got one, Bash? It turns out Loretta Crawford has her own agenda after all. She's using the book to try to get through to the teenagers she teaches. We remember when he was a kid and he was in the classroom. He was the smartest one out of all them kids. He was the smartest one, had the best grades, everything. This is Bianca and Linder. He was like, I want to be a lawyer. His teacher told him, no, you can't be a lawyer. You know, a black person cannot be a lawyer. You know, yeah, you should be a carpenter. Like, that was the only thing he was, like, he was good at. Amount to. Yeah. The part that stuck with me is when he became Detroit Red after he moved away from the foster home. This is Lamar Clark. The life that I live right now, and the things that I see right now, I can honestly relate to how he was feeling at that time. It's like he was trying to find a way for himself. Mr. Evans, please report to the main office. Mr. Evans, please report to the main office. 
as I was saying, that part stuck with me because I see drug dealers and I see pimps and all that all outside in my neighborhood. So, like, I can honestly relate to he thought he was going to make himself a better man if he was getting money because money make the world go round. I think Malcolm put it on paper, his growth, to show that where you begin is not where you end up. You talking about so you're looking at Malcolm, the Mount L. The man he became. The man I he became. I say he a humanist then, because like, as he grew up, he wanted to join everybody together because he realized Muslims came in every shape and color and the nation of Islam was wrong. I love you. Go ahead. You, somebody has something to say over here? So that's something that I want my kids to see. You can fall, you can get back up, and you can kind of keep it moving. Nobody's saying you're going to be the next Malcolm X or Barack Obama, but you can be pretty damn close. Since i seen where he came out of, I know nothing is impossible. All you have to do is have enough willpower and courage, actually. Only Malcolm X autobiography seemed to offer something different. In his book, Dreams of My Father, Barack Obama writes movingly of finding his footing by reading Malcolm's book. His repeated acts of self-creation spoke to me. The blunt poetry of his words, his unadorned insistence on respect, promised a new and uncompromising order, martial in its discipline, forged through sheer force of will. All the other stuff, the talk of blue-eyed devils and apocalypse, was incidental to that program, I decided religious baggage that Malcolm himself seemed to have safely abandoned towards the end of his life. But people take all kinds of lessons away from the autobiography, and not always the people you'd expect. My name is Lenny McAllister. I am a conservative Republican social activist based out of North Carolina. Lenny McAllister is that extremely rare bird, a a young black conservative who considers himself part of the Tea Party movement and gives speeches to them regularly. For example, I, I quoted President Jefferson right along with Malcolm X back to back and showing, look, Malcolm X says in his autobiography, no man or no government can give you freedom. If you're a man, you just take it. And for McAllister, having a black man in the White House is fine, but by no means the end of the story. One of the things that Malcolm pushed regularly for us was never give up the question of what's next. If you look at what's been going on in black America, our youth our families, and our economic status have all gotten stuck. And that's where a Malcolm X message of don't count on the government, don't lean on one leader, you claim freedom as a man on your own. That's a message that rings true not just in the Tea Party, but it has to ring more true now in 2010 and beyond. Ronald Reagan said that Americans are the only people who live in the future. Malcolm lived in the future. No movement advances by turning their leaders into statues. Or by cherry-picking particular bits of their lives. Thank you. But rather looking at the totality of a person's life and seeing that the flaws make the person great because he's a human. And that with the doubts and the fears, all moves forward and changes himself and hopefully tries to change society. And that's why he's a remarkable man. And the story of his life as a memoir makes a remarkable read. We need to tell our stories, and we need to listen when people tell theirs. For Julie Poole, the white college student living in Harlem, it wasn't Malcolm's politics or rhetoric that finally got to her. It was his simple and not-so-simple life story. And that's what's so valuable to me about this book is that I connected to his life experiences, not so much through the argument that he proposed, but through understanding him as a person. That's what's changed me. What can a sincere white person do? When I say that here now, it makes me think about that little co-ed I told you about, the one who flew from her New England college down to New York and came up to me in the Nation of Islam's restaurant in Harlem, and I told her there was nothing she could do. I regret that I told her that. We're, we're charmed. We're bewitched by it. Uh, the journey itself. I think the autobiography transforms him into an American icon, even as he stands for uh, a fundamental suspicion of the American enterprise. 
The next day I was in my car driving along the freeway when, at a red light, another car pulled alongside. A white woman was driving, and on the passenger side, next to me, was a white man. "'Malcolm X!' he called out. And when I looked, he stuck his hand out of his car across at me, grinning. "'Do you mind shaking hands with a white man?' "'Imagine that.' Just as the traffic light turned green, I told him, "'I don't mind shaking hands with human beings.' Are you one? In other words, you really can't judge a book by its cover. And especially not this book. You've been listening to Studio 360's American Icons, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Nah, man, we don't call our, our, our black heroes icons. We call them icons. Because they, they could do it. You have to be more than talk. He's an I can, and he did. I did. I can. I'm Kurt Anderson. Thank you very much for listening today. We'd love to hear about your own experiences reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. You can share those at studio360.org slash American Icons. This Hour of American Icons was produced by Derek John and Lou Olkowski. It was edited by David Krasnow. Dion Graham read the excerpts you heard from the autobiography of Malcolm X. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. And our theme music this week is by Public Enemy. You going to leave this book with me? That's the price for the interview, right? Studio 360's American Icons Project is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Great Ideas Brought to Life, and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks, and by the SC Group, whose charitable resources include FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds at fjc.org. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, Mad Max Fury Road is full of nonstop crazy action sequences, but not full of CGI. If you're going to go out of the desert and have two vehicles colliding, why do it artificially? I'll talk with Oscar-nominated director George Miller next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.